Thinking God podcast, my guest is Pamela C. Hawkins, whose new book aims to help Christians prepare the way for the Advent season, which starts this week. Um, Pamela Hawkins is a writer, an artist, a United Methodist pastor, and a spiritual guide. I don't know which one of those is your favorite title. We'll get to that. (laughs) Her new book, Prepare the Way, Cultivating a Heart for God in Advent, is here just in time for the holiday season. It's available on Amazon everywhere else. We're going to talk about that some. Her other books include Behold, Cultivating Attentiveness, in the season of Advent, and simply wait, cultivating stillness in the season of Advent. And she also has a book on Lent, The Awkward Season, Prayers for Lent. Hi, Pam. Uh, I was putting together a show about the holidays, and I started talking to a number of people at various places. Um, talked to one of the editors of Christianity Today and a couple other places, and your name came up. Um, they were talking about your book. The one they were talking about actually was Simply Wait, and it's still on a, a bunch of lists of best Advent books out there. What what has led you to become the guru of Advent in, in addition to all the other things you do? I think that is a question I'm asking myself. I, it really came about um, simply by an invitation from a publisher to try my hand at writing about Advent. Um, so that was that's the true story about how I began to write books for the season. But I think that really rose out of my prayer life and I had been writing prayers for different seasons, liturgical prayers, and my prayers had really begun to be used um, in a variety of settings. So I think I think actually this role of writing for the Advent season is is um, rising out of my prayer life and my writing for the church trying to use new words and fresh images um, in seasons, including Advent. So that's what happened. Someone asked me to write a book, and since then they've asked me to continue writing these books. Well, one of the things we're going to do, is, particularly as we continue to uh, to evolve here on the Thinking God podcast, we're going to be talking to folks of all different faiths. Could you just give us uh, maybe uh, you know a couple of minute overview of what Advent is in case somebody's listening to this? A lot of people were raised, we'll talk about that, were raised in churches that were Christian churches but didn't in any way acknowledge Advent. Could you just kind of give us an idea what Advent's all about? Absolutely. And um, I'll start with saying I was raised in that very kind of church. I... Uh, I was raised in the Methodist church, but Advent was absolutely not on the radar of my childhood or even um, adolescence. I was I was a young adult before I really realized there was a season of Advent and um, Advent um, in most Christian traditions is the four week period um, beginning with the the Sunday, four Sundays before um, Christmas. So it is a four week season of preparation through liturgy, through worship, um, through life in the church and in the community, leading up, preparing for the birth of Christ. So um, so that is, I guess, in a nutshell, in, in that period of time, um, many churches who, who really do honor the season of Advent and follow some kind of pattern of Advent 
have particular um, scriptures that we read every Sunday out of the Common English um, Lectionary, Common Revised Lectionary. And um, so there's a regular pattern of scripture reading, the scriptures we read, the kinds of sermons we hear, the music we sing. And it's all this imagery and the themes of preparing our hearts, preparing our lives for the birth of Jesus, for the coming of Christ. Um, so that is um, that is the intent of the season and of the churches that do um, now try to follow this season. It, historically, it's had uh, it's had really quite a few different um, shapes to it. Uh, originally, um, beginning back in the fourth century, and I won't go into too much detail, but I think it's interesting um, because we've lost some of this. Originally, it was really a season that the early church. Um, was preparing um, converts to be baptized um, on Epiphany. So originally Advent um, in the early church was a longer season, and it was really intended to be a preparatory season more about the second coming of Christ, and, and converts would be baptized on Epiphany in January. And then as the church kind of took different shapes and uh, followed different patterns with Eastern um, Eastern Christianity along with Western Christianity, um, the church, particularly out of Rome, um, it became more formalized. It actually was intended to be a season, much like Lent, of penitence. Um, and that's where the purple came in, much like we use in Lent. Um, many churches during Advent. Sorry, I was just going to say, talk a little bit about those colors. Now that you mentioned, because people who have not experienced it, if they do wander right. into somewhere, they see all this purple and gold and all that. It doesn't look like Christmas colors to people. Right, right. Um, most churches who are honoring Advent, um, you will walk into the church and you'll see uh, the color either purple or blue. Purple in um, what we call pyramids, the claws that um, you might see on the pulpit coming um, down off of the pulpit or off of um, the lectern where the Bible would be. Um, pastors and um, priests would be wearing over their clergy robes. They'd be wearing uh, stoles of purple. There are purple candles um, and, and a pink candle in what we call an Advent wreath. So you walk in there and purple, again, um, historically purple for Advent, began to be connected with um, a season of penitence. But then as it shifted, the Advent was really um, preparation for celebration. Um, that really is what the purple color means to most congregations that use the purple color. Um, if you walk into a church that is using blue in the same um, elements, in the pyramids and in what the pastors wear, um, blue is the color of royalty. And so, again, it would be celebrating um, the Prince of Peace, the coming of Christ the King. So the colors just have specific um, symbolic meaning in the liturgical year. And Advent for the churches, or for the Christian church, Advent is the season where we begin our year. So it is on the first Sunday of Advent, it is the new year beginning. Even though it's in December for the church, it is the beginning of the year. So that's um, that's what you see, and that's why the colors are there, just to symbolize um, different different meanings for the people um, who who come to worship in this season. 
Well, I, I kind of interrupted you there, but one question I did want to ask is, um, you said you came to this uh, after you you were an adult. How did it become meaningful to you, having grown up in a Christian church but not been a participant in Advent kind of services? It, Advent really became meaningful to me when I um, began to read the scriptures. I have to say, it wasn't until I started doing Bible study and really, real, uh, really realized there are more scriptures to be read in the weeks leading up to Christmas than the gospel. I was really raised in the church where it was the gospel stories that we read. And I think, I think the gospel stories in Advent are really confusing for anyone who doesn't read the other scriptures, read the Psalms, read the Old Testament readings um, and the, and the epistles, because I mean, if you look at the scriptures um, that we are to be reading and um, preaching on and hearing in Advent, the, the first Sunday is really eschatological. It's really about end time, so more about the second coming. And then the next, um, the next two really are about um, John the Baptist. And then all of a sudden we're there at the manger. It's really confusing for people. And I think that's one reason so many of us really didn't know there was Advent. It was like we were thinking about Christmas and it took us a few weeks to even get to Christmas. So it was when I started reading all those other amazingly beautiful scriptures, especially the prophets, where I wanted to know more about what God was up to, what was leading us to this this mysterious, beautiful, life-changing miracle of incarnation. And so once I lived in those scriptures, once I began to study those scriptures, even before I became a pastor, it just illumined for me the, the gift of time leading up to um, the birth of Jesus. Well, culturally, every year it seems, um, even though we put Christmas trees up at the end of August, uh, Christmas sneaks up on people and e- even people of faith have to really make an effort to find any meaning beyond just buying presents for the family and getting the tree up and getting through all the trappings of Christmas. So I guess Advent is one of those set aside times that is an, helps people start thinking about it before the week before Christmas Eve. You know, it, um, it, it can be, I think there are a lot of reasons that um, we struggle with giving that kind of time Um, to any of the weeks leading up to Christmas, you know, we know we we get so busy. We get our sights so set on all the busyness, all the doing that we have made part of our Christmas lives, Um, you know, trying to do a lot of good work in the community, trying to be at church a lot more, trying to purchase the presents and get the family together. And there's so much of that to really ask for us to be more focused on what is actually happening in the life of God's people. You know, it, it is a sacrificial request of us. It's totally countercultural, right? I mean, to say, wait a minute, let's slow down. Let's, let's really slow down here. So it is, um, it is that opportunity that God always offers us um, to take to heart what is about to happen in our life together. Um, And that I I regret that it takes so much for us to pull people back, to pull ourselves back for being in 
in a different way of living with God leading up to um, leading up to Christmas. Um, but we have that, and the church has a remarkable opportunity to make room for people to remember why we are in love with God and to remember why God is in love with us. That's really what I long for Advent um, to be for the people of God, just that time to relish that, in fact, this is um, this is just that steadfast, loving time that God is giving us, pointing us to why Jesus comes into the world. It, it almost it, it, our discussion here is almost raising a larger point about set aside times. Anyway, uh, from the very beginning, you know, in Genesis one it talks about uh, God separated time into the seasons. Um, in fact, uh, I think the Hebrew word uh, for that used there is appointed times, it, and it's the people who would have heard the first people who heard those words and were read those words. It would have had a very deep meaning. Because the movements in the heavens, the moon moves, you know, and creates the months, and the earth moves, creates the seasons as it tilts. And before electricity and clocks, and for most of human history, those seasons were how people marked time. And you mentioned creating space. It's in those seasons, that's the place where you can create space to meet with God. And without those seasons, it becomes one long sort of droning day after day, which never seems to end, kind of like this political season. I mean, it just, it just seems like it's a, it becomes a one-note, one-tone thing where we don't take a break. And I think in the, in, the old, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was an example of stopping. And then Advent, and you've written a book on Lent as well as the church calendar. Talk a little bit about that. About time? Yeah, about, about how God and the set-aside times, because it seems, you know, uh, yeah. your books have reflected that some. Yeah. Right. Um, again, just as you just said, living in the scriptures, living, going back in them and reading them and really just, um, I, I just, I find that the grounding ourselves in the word of God points so much to the preciousness of time as God has given it to us. And, and the fact that the way we're living now, at least in, um, in, in the part of the world that, that you and I are living in, I think, Gratefully, there are places in the world where there's still that reverence for time as God has created it. Um, but where we live, we, we, I think we've gotten to the mindset and the activity um, way of living that we own time, that we can control time. And in fact, in so many ways, just like you said, I just the image of uh, certainly in Advent, you know, the, the whole image of the star. I mean, here's this star over a manger, and you. you even young children get that. I mean, that you go out and you look for this star. And, you know, that is, um, that is part of the season of time. That is something God has done. And yet, look at all the lights. We're, I just think, look what we've done. We've tried to fill everything with lights and artificial lights and control the lights. But I think the beauty of this time, the fact that God has created time, and, and we're born into time. I mean, there again, for the season of Advent leading to Christmas, is that, we are, time is finite for us individually, and to have these seasons of the church remind us through the story of God's people that the time that God has provided for us is significant in how we live our lives in creation, that there is time to be awake, there's time to be asleep, there's time to look at the stars, there's time in 
in harvest time to look at the earth. And I think that's part of prayer. I, I, for me, um, for me, pointing people in the season of Advent or Lent or Pentecost, pointing people to how God is at work in creation and time reminds us that we are, no matter what, when all the lights go out in our, in our created order, God's, God's time and the images and the realities of creation, they are there for us. They are there for us for a reason. And it draws us back into God. I, there goes my dog. Sorry about it's okay. that. I thought mine was going to do that. So. Oh, no, I don't. Sorry. Let me go. Let me go. All right. Yes. One, two. I think I got a point there. No, so, this, no, I think you think you're right on point, and I do think there's a rhythm that, uh, if, if you look at uh, psychological studies on the rhythm of seasons in humans and animals, they're not really that much different. Even when, when you, like you said, we try to artificially alter that. Uh, for example, if, if you hear somebody uh, hammering a nail. And it, at some point, it becomes droning because it's not a true rhythm. But if you hear a very talented drummer, then you can be engaged in that. Yeah. There's, a, there's a rhythm in our lives that if we miss, then it's one of the things that creates the stress and the the feeling of being unconnect, uh, disconnected and out of kilter with things because we're not engaging in the rhythm that's already there. We're trying to, 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 to create our own, you know, uh, non-syncopated sort of uh, lives that, that don't fit into what would make us more um, content. Well, and, and just what you said reminds me of, um, you know, when you hear people say, I really miss the four seasons. If they had grown up, if they were raised in a, in a location where there are the changes of seasons and people, I mean, what are they really saying? I mean, to me, they're really saying there's something if something they've experienced that they're longing for and it's related to the seasons or, um, you know, I really, gosh, I really want to go and see a falling star. I haven't seen a falling star in so long. And I, when I hear that, it, I, I sense that's really a longing for something that they've seen God at work in. And that, that, is a possibility again, and I, from what you said, um, that is a possibility of I think reconnecting with those rhythms that are already in us. I mean, that's it's God's life in us through the Holy Spirit for me that just reminds us of that, and that's what to me that is what these seasons in the church through everything from fragrance to color to image to beautiful words um, to hymns and lyrics remind us of those things. I mean, how restorative can those be? Because it isn't about us. It's really not about us. Um, and that is, I mean, that's another coming back home. I mean, coming back home to God. And we work so much in our daily lives trying to either recreate what God has done or improve upon what God has done or outsmart God. And I think, oh my goodness, I just think the whole possibility of, um, that's why I use the word cultivating, of, of kind of digging back into the soil of God, of, 
of living with God in contemplation or um, searching scripture or just prayer, just seeking God under the winter sky. Um, I think, I think God is so hopeful that we'll do this and that we can actually impact the lives and imaginations of people by honoring and living in liturgical seasons in the church. Um, yeah, I, I think you're onto something. I think two or three things you mentioned there. I, I experienced the the very thing you're talking about. Uh, raised in a place with four very distinct seasons. Uh, moved to California to Marin County. Lived in Millville. Loved it. I mean, you can't you can't find a more beautiful place with uh, redwoods and beaches and eucalyptus groves and it's just it's just incredible. And yet, in the midst of all that, never needing heating or air conditioning and the beauty and the I found myself when the sea, when the look at the calendar, the seasons. I was ex- having an expectation that wasn't being met uh, yeah. because I missed the season. But the, the the thing you talked about when you said stars a while ago brought to mind. I, I meant meant to mention this. You know, there have been recent studies that talk about light pollution. Now that eighty five percent of the United States has so much light pollution, the number of visible stars has just about reached you know next to nothing. In fact, they say uh, airplanes flying into like Los Angeles can see. Uh, the city from like 400 miles away or something because it's there's so much light pollution from that. Um, it, you do have this longing to make that connection. I know I, I wish my kids could see the same stars outside at night I saw as a kid, but there's just too much light pollution. Uh, right. You know, I um, I often find my prayer time best um, in the early morning when the light pollution is as minimal as it can possibly be and I do see the stars. I mean, I'm right in the heart of a very urban area, but when it's the quietest it can be from a light perspective, I can see them. And again, I just believe, I really believe God longs for us to pay attention to what's still out there for us. But that we have, um, you know, we've, we've pulled this veil of pollution, um, light pollution, noise pollution, um, productivity pollution. I mean, that, that those elements that, again, are so embedded in God's creation and God's story <laughs> that, that it's, this, it's what you just described. You would long for your kids to have that. I do, too. And... Um, just that, just imagine really what would happen if the church, if the people of God who who find a home, find a spiritual home in the church, um, could make a concerted effort then to just kind of like the children of the Hebrew people, but to take our children out and teach them that and show them that and that it would be worth the time, worth the effort. I just, there's something about God's longing for us to really take that to heart um, and, to, and to change something. Of course, environmentally, we're called to change things, but how good it would be if we could be so changed through maybe even a preparatory season. Um, has, of, to, has to start somewhere. It has to. It has, But I think it's already started. I think, I think what I'm not saying very well it is... I think God is already at work in in you and in me and other people because 
we long for that and we recognize it's holy. We recognize that those stars in the sky are as holy today, as sacred today as they were when they were first created. Um, And we, I mean, that's, that's a longing. That's that talk about hope. I mean, talk about hope that those stars are still in the sky, just like the psalmists say, and that we've got this beautiful, one beautiful season, the church that points us to the sky, really every child sticking their head outside and looking for the sky and looking for those stars. And I don't know. I, I just, that, um, that whole image, but reality, and then the, I guess, from a confessional perspective, and yet look what we've done. Look what we've done and are still doing by creating light that has nothing to do with anything um, creation-oriented, but rather more destructive of what God's already done. Um, and I think we know we know that's off base. We know that's absolutely not, <laughs> um, not what Jesus, who's born into the world is asking us to do. Um, I, I mean, I, I both um, grieve, I grieve that we keep, uh, we keep interfering with the gifts of God, but I'm also, so, it's, it like really revs me up to think about, okay, so how can we as children of God, as, um, um, people whose lives have been changed by the life-giving God that I experienced through Christ, um, how can we move back toward what God is redeeming and can redeem through our lives? Um, I believe light pollution could be reduced. Personally, I believe that. But my faith informs me about why that's so important. Why is it important to, as a person of faith, um, do all I can to diminish light pollution um, that is is destructive? Um, it's a matter of faith, right? I mean, it's a matter of faith for me. Well, and I think it, it's to me it's interesting uh, just as I'm sort of uh, uh, digesting our conversation here, how we're moving in and out of the very powerful cosmic uh, biblical concept of light and the metaphor of light. Uh, I think you've got your next book here, Light Pollution in the World, <laughs> the Light of the well, World. I mean, I, you know, there really is something there. There is something there on so many levels, right? Right. So levels. Um, thank you for that. I think you're right. I, yeah, I've been living in the um, the image beyond this Advent season that has been coming is the whole, just from the scriptures of um, light, um, you know, light out of darkness, the people of darkness have seen a great fight. Like what is that? I mean, and as you say, in this political climate, it's just, you know, folks, there is going to be light. There is light. There is light. But how do we trust that? How do we look for that? Um, there's not a better season than Advent for that, in my view, of really reminding people, you know. But if you don't know, if you're not, if you're not allowing yourselves to pay attention to the destructive, um, the destructive elements of whatever the darkness might be, whatever that symbolizes or actually is, it is hard to appreciate. It's really hard to appreciate. 
the gift of light. Um, and when we create our own light all the time, we really lose the, I guess, the, the mysterious um, power of light. Because I can, I can make my own light. I can stay up all night if I want to. I can, uh, you know, all those things that we put back in our hands, which is not, <laughs> isn't the point. Um, I think it's easy to um, dismiss how powerful a tiny bit of light is. I mean, there's all, you know, it's cliched, but people, if, there's so few places that are totally dark now, but if you've ever been into some of the caverns or um, right. underground in a place and they turn off the lights just to show you what complete pure darkness is, the the most minute amount of light, it, it, you see how much power is in that. And yet, it, and at Christmas, like you're saying, it, the Advent season is is reminding us that light coming into a dark world, and that, that, that metaphor is over and over in the songs and in the liturgy and everything else. Right. You know, I'm just thinking about that in, in the worship. But but if, if the only light in liturgy that a person sees is a lit image on a screen of a candle, as opposed to a candle lit in a dark sanctuary or dark room, again, I think we and, and I have I have gladly been in um in ministry and churches that use screens and use candles. But I'm just, I think we, again, we have um, tried to recreate what, what real light is. So, yeah, I think, um, I think the power of that light of a, of a single candle or just candles lit in darkness, there, there are not really words for that. Um, yeah. And it's, the, the the notion too you mentioned a candle is is that light can be fragile too absolutely when it can be terrifying i mean i do a lot of work with um refugees um here and and people who are afraid for a variety of reasons um i do a lot of ministry um with um the lgbtq community um here in nashville and in the area and just the stories of people who really for a vast number of reasons have had to hide, you know, that light has not been, I mean, it's, you've got to redeem what light is because they've either had to hide in refugee camps um, and, and light was not their friend because they couldn't escape in the light. They can only escape in the darkness. Or again, persons who have, um, have not wanted to shine light on who they really are because of fear and so living in ministry with people for whom that image of light has been has not been um, life-giving and helping that be redeemed through through our faith and listening to their stories and trying to understand where darkness um, has times has saved their lives I mean I'm just um, the fragility of light and even the paradox of light in life together. If, if we're not talking about it together and um, preaching about it and um, bringing the true light into focus, um, boy, do we miss opportunities for what the church has to offer. And also to not negate the stories of darkness that people bring with them into the sanctuary, you know, in, into the community center. Um, 
I like the phrase you just used there, true light. Uh, the, the true light is not fragile. That's the thing. I, you know, it's like it, it's it's inside of a, you know, a hurricane lantern. It can it can sustain yeah. 200 mile per hour winds and the candle won't go out. That's right. Or the true light is in a mother's, just a mother's eyes to a child that she's just literally holding so tightly to be quiet so they don't get discovered. I mean, that child sees light in that mother's eyes. I've heard these stories and I think that is the true light. I mean, that is, but if we're not in community together, if we're not, if we don't have something to point people to, which we do, um, I mean, you can say, I just, that's what I love about, that's what I love about this, this work of um, writing about and um, guiding to and um, trying for myself to deepen this life with this, um, with this, incarnational God who truly wants us to get that difference of what is the true light. And Advent, I mean, there again, that's, that's, that's one of the, those profound images we have. No, it's not just any light. It's the true light. And what is the true light? How do we point people to that and help them know that is a light that no matter where they are, what's going on, that is a light that is theirs always, always, um, well, listen, it's not really shifting gears because it's what we're talking about, but how did how did you get to this place? And you've been in ministry a long time, and now you're talking about uh, ministering to refugees and the, uh, the LGBT community and stuff. How did you get to this place in ministry, Pam? Oh, what a great question. Um, I, I have been so powerfully and graciously mentored by... Um, other other persons in the church who have really helped shape my response to God's call, I would say. Um, I would say that, um, I mean, in my early days of ministry, um, I was really formed um, out of my my own experience, certainly in the pews and in lay leadership. And then when I got to seminary, it was all about wonderful information and a little bit of practice of ministry. And so taking all that in, um, and it wasn't until I actually got into my first appointment at a church and... Um, was given my primary task and my first appointment in a church was to lead all the congregational prayers because, you know, I was an associate pastor. I wasn't going to preach much and I was a newbie. So I really wasn't going to do much on my own initially, but I was asked to start praying every Sunday, all the prayers of the church. And that immediately began to open my eyes and my heart to what God was calling me to, um, I began to see people um, in the church who were less like me and um, and I realized that just through my prayer life and being in that position of being seen as a person of prayer that I became this open um, this kind of this open door for people just to want to come and sit and talk to me. I wasn't the big authority. I was, um, I was new. 
And it was through their stories, often about really difficult things, um, and through being in prayer with them, learning to pray. I didn't, I really didn't even know how to pray at the time. I was just reading prayers out of the prayer book. Um, that I think where I am today um, began to take shape because um, I have always felt a call to work with people who have um, been not mainstream. Originally working working with um, persons with disabilities, um, that I was in special education for many years. And so working with persons with disabilities and then working with um, parents who were in prison and then you know, working with, um, with certainly with refugees and people from other countries. That's what my grandfather had done for so long. So that's always been part of my nature and part of my life. But once I was in ministry, it was, it was a life of prayer and mentors who really, really taught me to be prayerful. If nothing else, um, cultivate my prayer life, um, and share prayer with other people. So I think that, you know, as I had my different appointments in the Methodist church, we go where our bishop sends us. So I've done that. And I kept being drawn to just, just, I think out of my life with God, I kept being drawn to the people who weren't speaking out very much or who I knew were in a position of, um, being on an edge. And that wasn't me. I, I never saw, I was not, it was different than me. I was definitely raised in a, a, a fluent, um, highly educated family and never had to worry uh, openly about anything. So I can't, I think that was just, I think that's just who God has um, opened my eyes to early all of my life. But where I am now, I think after being in local churches and, and, and really being more kind of walking the line with people who um, were not as far on the edges as the people I'm ministering with now, um, it just wasn't, it, God just never let me, um, let me go with that. God never um, left me alone. It was as though, you know, I'm not really... I'm calling you to something else. I'm calling you to something else. And I began in every appointment to be drawn more and more to persons who really did not have access to the kinds of churches I was being appointed to. Um, and that included, I mean, the refugee community, adults with disabilities, um, and, and certainly the um, LGBTQ community. And that, that has been for the last maybe 10 years, a very um, mysterious and life changing faith strengthening um, gift to me. Um, I, I had a longing to teach um, what I had been learning through my own living in scripture and to teach about what scriptures at least in my understanding and, and studying, um, really offered to um, the LGBTQ persons um, I knew and loved. And so I started teaching and bringing groups together using a beautiful curriculum um, called um, 
this I know. It's it's just a seven week. But anyway, and people came. I mean, people came I, out of the blue. At least with that community, I had. I mean, I had parents of um, um, gay young people. I had grandparents. I had trans people who found it. Um, I had students who hadn't come out yet to the parents, and I had mainline, main. Um, center community leaders in different congregations who all would come together because they had that longing too, but they didn't know how to get there. And so I think, again, it is scripture. I, I stay in the scriptures. I read the scriptures. I study the scriptures just for my own formation and prayer. And, and, and through my prayer that God um, will continue to give me ways to remind everyone and show everyone that they are beloved children of God. Cause I believe that to my core, I can't fathom. There is a God we would worship who wouldn't say I created all these people, all of them equally. And I've created them out of love. Everybody, um, you know, the Syrian refugee who is in the ESL class that I now help with and who just got here out of the camps um, as well as uh, my my very best friends, um, um, gay men who have changed my life and, and who cared for me during the illness and death of my husband. So what has gotten me here? I'm hoping I'm hoping that my passion for justice and prayer, um, which is how I describe right now, my current um, call to ministry is to ministry of justice and prayer. I hope that it's because from the very beginning of my paying attention to this nudge from God that I trusted and was led by other people and by God to kind of a um, kind of like the, the gem in the in the oyster, really, um, that it, it wasn't as complicated as ministry seemed to make it that kind of like when Jesus says, okay, here it is. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, and and that's kind of where I believe my ministry has been leading me because that's really where God really is calling me. And, And it has led me not to the people that have been already so wonderfully shaped and formed and trained and safe in the Christian church, but it's led me to the people who that has not been their experience yet. And that's not good enough for God. And that's not good enough for my heart. And I can't, I, I never knew where to start. <laughs> so does that, I mean, I think no, that's, that's a good, good. No, answer. You know, there's several things that came out that I want to ask you about. The, the sure. you're, you're really talking about the least of these. Tony Campolo, you know, he went through a long, very uh, public struggle about where he stood on the LGBTQ community. And he Finally, he said when I interviewed him that it was through Scripture that changed his mind. Was there, was there ever a point in which you were really struggling about whether or not you felt like that was a biblical a problem for you, or was it just you, you felt like from the beginning when you started ministering that there was no problem there scripturally? There, yeah, good question. There was never, never a question in my mind. Never, and that is, I think, because of incarnation. I'll just say again, the power of incarnation for me. From my earliest childhood... <laughs> Although I didn't have a name for it, I didn't know who these wonderful people were. My father, who was a he was a scientist, a biochemist, and many of his students and colleagues 
you know, were were gay. Of course, they were called queer then, but they were. I mean, he was high. So these there were people I met and knew who were they were who they were, and there was nothing in my home, you know, that made anything but welcome. And the same with my school experience. I mean, I now know that so many of my dearest friends, especially in high school, um, are gay. And I don't know that they knew they were gay, but it's like, but they were my best friends and we were all best friends. And so I think that's the power of incarnation. So no, I never, I was puzzled and troubled by learning that there were these seven verses that people were saying and I mean, they weren't even verses that I heard preached. <laughs> there was no dialogue, but you know, never in my heart could I believe that. I just couldn't. So no, it was never a struggle for me. The struggle was, how did we get, if, if I don't believe that, and I fully know I'm a follower of Jesus, how did we get there? How did we get to saying that? And I had to study this, like Tony, I just had to start reading and reading and not knowing what I'd find. Oh my God. But then I learned, of course, well, there are all kinds of things in scripture that I don't believe uh, anymore. Um, and I'm no less a child of God. I'm no less called to be in ministry. I mean, so, so no, I'm, I, the struggle was more, oh my gosh, what have we done? And how have we done this in the name of God? And, and having to be willing to read scripture and discover that something was there and what was that going to do to my faith? What was that going to do to me? And, and again, for me, I, it's not there at all. <laughs> well, and you just said something though, and it, it, it struck me because of the way you've been approaching this. You seem to have a high view of scripture from the way you're talking, but then you said there are still things you don't believe. Absolutely. Yeah. Talk, sure. Explain to what, what you mean by that. Cause that, that confuses people right. sometimes. Yes, say, I'm a high view of scripture, but I don't believe some of the things. Right. Very good. Um, my high view, well, let's say that some of the things I, I do not believe that you can't wear two kinds of fabrics together. I just, I think in this, in my context, in my life, that even though that's in scripture, for like color my, blocking, does that work in there? Anymore? Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, and, and I, and I don't believe that now, um, all women should cover their heads. Um, although I will cover my head if I'm going, you know, to a mosque or, I mean, so, but I don't believe that it's there, but it was there for a reason. So the content for me, I have a high, high, um, not in regard, but scripture has, scripture has permitted me <laughs> to find my way to God over and over and over again. But I do not believe at all that everything written in scripture for a certain time by a certain person um, has um, it requires me to believe it's so for me in this day, especially if it does something harmful to a child of God, especially then, then I really, really, really have to live with it and live with it and talk to other people about it. Does that, I mean, that's, yeah, I um, you mentioned your grandfather uh, is a spiritual yeah. mentor in some way. What did, what did he do? My grandfather, my mom's dad, um, he started off as an entomologist in Ohio, and then he went to Auburn University, and he started the fisheries department um, in Auburn. He, he went from studying bugs to studying fish, actually started that department. And 
what that meant for him was he he began developing um, the uh, the ratios of different kinds of fish to have in ponds so that people in especially in poor countries and nations around the world could actually begin growing fish as a source of healthy food. And so he, um, that meant while he was at Auburn, the many years he was there at Auburn, he was bringing in students from all over the world, but places not like, you know, France and like from, um, Vietnam and Cambodia and India and uh, I mean just places I've never even heard of the and none of them had money but they were given scholarships usually by their government so whenever I was down at their house which was often their whole house was just filled with with um with the world in people and and so he um oh my goodness just watching him love these people, teach these people. When they didn't have money, he and my grandmother would take the money out of their personal bank accounts and make sure. I mean, it was like, it was like a house church except of people of so many different faiths. And, um, oh my goodness, honestly, I just, I just have such a heart for what I learned watching him and learning from him. I mean, he was, he was a United Methodist, he was a Methodist, but he wasn't particularly a church-going person, but he was a man of deep faith. And that's what I learned. I learned that everybody, no matter what they looked like or what they sounded like or what they believed, was oh, just worthy of my um, respect and my deep curiosity. That's what I learned. Wow. You know, that's an amazing legacy from your parents and your grandparents combined Isn't there. It? It you, really is. you mentioned, I didn't count them, but there are a lot. You've said the word prayer or pray probably more than any other word we've talked about. And, and we're talking about Advent. What, what is prayer to you and why is it so significant that you just keep bringing it up in every question I ask? Prayer to me is life with God. That's, that was what I'd say. Prayer is really life with God. Um, and what I mean by that is I, I really believe that prayer is um, is our is our primary language. I know there are books out there about primary speech, but I believe it is our first language that God in our very creation places in us this um, never will be broken um, line of life together. Um, and that our task, um, our task as people of prayer, um, and I say task because I think Jesus is, is really clear about um, prayer. Um, our task is to um, is to practice with God um, our our communication, our communion with God, and that that prayer. The reason I speak of it is my my. Um, Probably my greatest mentor and teacher um, was a was a wonderful man named Reuben Job. I don't know you probably know of Reuben Job. He was a, a a United Methodist bishop. Just passed away a couple of years ago, but he was my spiritual director, gosh, for over twenty years. Um, and he wrote books of prayer and t- 
taught me that the United Methodist Hymnal is a book of prayer. And so he really taught me that my ongoing communication and life with God is not, um, is not really just a choice of mine. I don't just say, I think I'll pray, but that it is already ongoing in me. It is not something that I can walk away from. It is always, always available to me. So God is always waiting for me to connect to God. And, and, and it changes me. Um, prayer reminds me that the breath I breathe, the blood that courses through my body, um, the thoughts I have, that they're all um, really born out of God's um, communion with me. And without prayer, without tapping into this loving communication with God and often challenging communication with God, this truthful communication with God, without tapping into that, I am not acknowledging that I'm dependent on my creator. And that's what prayer does best, I think. It is reminding me that I do not begin and end at any time with myself. But in fact, there is a life in the spirit that is in me already and is giving me the words that I need, is is showing me the way to go if I'll pay attention, Um, is reminding me even when I feel that I'm unlovable, which I absolutely often feel, um, that in fact, I am so beloved. So that is, to me, that is what prayer provides for us. And it's not an option. I, I don't think prayer is an option. I think it is there. It is in us. And so what what we do when we teach others to pray, what Jesus did was try to point us back to that um, truth that the word the word um, is already in us. That word is in us, and that word begins with prayer to me. Um, and it, we can ignore it. It's still there um, because God is steadfast. We can, um, <laughs> we can say, say mean things about how our prayer didn't do what we wanted it to do, but the prayer is still there. And the, the, the God of communion and communication is still with us um, and doesn't leave us and is ready for us to rehearse it again and to write with it again or to create a beautiful piece of art with it again or to look for a star even more fervently again because that, that life with God, which is prayer, um, is is never, ever, ever um, turned off. This sort of leads into one of the things we were talking about is one of the other things you're doing in your ministry is trying to work with clergy and lay, letter, lay leaders to more fully experience this kind of connection in their spirituality and experience. Um, how does that work? Well, it works um, for me um, primarily in... Um, in settings of retreat, I um, 
I have often offered um, just spiritual life retreats, those times for clergy to get away to a quiet place and to be nourished by others um, because they're so spent. They're so, um, I mean, I'm including myself in this, but I'll speak as a person who really tries to step outside their, um, their reserves are tapped. They, um, they give everything they've got for, um, for others. And so a spiritual life retreat is a primary model that I have, um, that I have offered. And, um, and I just try to, and, and it works by taking care of all the details, all the space, all the um, food, all the hospitality, everything. And, and then leading God's um, shepherds through the nourishment of prayer and scripture and rest and just taking, taking the yoke with them. So that's so spiritual life retreat has been a primary mode. I am a spiritual director. So I have, um, I have often um, provided direction to other clergy who want that kind of one-on-one conversation and listening um, over a period of time about their own life with God, their own struggles with God, um, looking for light, uh, identifying What is a a spiritual director? I'm not sure I understand that term. um, In in my tradition, a spiritual director is a... um, is a person of faith. It does not have to be clergy. It can be clergy or lay. Is a person committed to their own deepening spiritual life with God as, as a Christian person, but there are many directors who are from other traditions, other faith traditions, and who has a calling and a gift, a spiritual gift, for holding with another person um, their own musings, their own um, wounds, um, their own hopes about their own life with God. So it is not counseling. There's nothing, no fixing. There's no analyzing. There's no, it is really about holding someone's um, life with God in a way that is um, safe and faithful and prayer, um, prayer embraced. So it's often what it's not. And, and it doesn't, it's not necessarily a matter of age. Many people think that to be a spiritual director, and often this is the case, my spiritual director certainly was a person both of age and wisdom um, far beyond my own. Um, but it doesn't, it's not a matter of age. It's a matter of spiritual. I would say people tend to seek directors who have a, a spiritual depth that they resonate with or a spiritual breadth, um, or just a presence of contemplative prayerfulness, a, 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 a commitment to life with God of their own. So you can find a 20 year old, 20 year old who has all that, you know, but, um, but when I go to my director, I want to be totally free to reveal the struggles of my own life as a person of faith not for counseling, but for just talking about God. You know, where is God in this? 
Well, and that, and that leads sort of, you were talking about the, the working with uh, pastors and lay leaders. Uh, the, it's clear from all statistics that the burnout rate in ministers is accelerating along with depression rates, uh, lack of job satisfaction, divorces. Uh, what are you hearing on the, on the front lines of this when you're talking to folks? Um, I'm hearing that um, ministry has become trying to satisfy the human, um, the human heart, the human suffering, the human church, which is very demanding. Um, so I hear, I hear the exhaustion just in more worship services, more expectations. The pastor will be in their office, you know, six days a week. So just more, 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 um, because, because, the world is full of chaos, as we know. So I hear that. I hear a I hear a longing to go back to their calling. Wait a minute. I haven't thought about what this calling really was at the beginning. So I hear people just wanting to rehearse. What did God call me for? And how am I so off base? How can I get back to what my calling is? I hear so much stress of family situations. And again, I don't operate as a counselor, but that comes up, of course, because they're always at church and children. I mean, that they're missing their children because they're always at church. They're you know, always traveling. They're always taking care of other people. So I think what I, what I hear in that and what I relate to personally is, again, we, we forget, we forget that it is God to whom we are um, beholding in our call. And if we are not returning in some spiritual discipline, some spiritual practices that keep us close to the heart of God, keep us, my, my image is in the lap of God. If I don't go back to the lap of God daily, regularly, I cannot keep perspective on what this call is really about. So absolutely what you're hearing, I hear and I see. And um, again, that is another reason why I really focus on, as a Richard Foster, so many writers focus on the spiritual practices, the spiritual disciplines, and clergy need not only to be leading in these, clergy need to have safe, protected places to go and get away. And their bishops and their, and their lead pastors need to be telling them to do it. We don't do that, you know? I mean, I, in 20 years of ordained ministry, I don't know that I had any of my, and I have had wonderful bishops. I don't know I've had any of my bishops say to me, especially as an associate pastor, because you're really off the radar, you need to get away for a week. You need to fall in love with God for a week. And that's not good. Well, and the the and this word is not being defined properly, obviously, in the great greater context. But the more successful a pastor is, the more those pressures grow. And if you look at the list of the top twenty uh, growing churches, almost none of those would have a bishop or anybody above them to even begin to go talk to. Right. Um, as, as a spiritual director, let's say you could go back twenty or twenty five years and advise a younger version of yourself. What what would you tell that person? Um, I would tell that person. Um, to take Bible study, not just to lead it. <laughs> I did that all through my, even though I was a, a pastor on staff, I would 
I would be in Bible study with other people and not lead. I would, um, I would urge um, a young pastor, a new pastor, I wouldn't necessarily say young, a new pastor, to start purchasing prayer books, just to go to bookstores or online and buy prayer books and just read them, just like you would poetry. Um, just begin to find different images. I would also, I do, um, when I meet with new clergy or clergy-to-be, um, I really ask them where their safe places are. You know, where where can you go and really feel safe? Outside, inside, um, where is your favorite? Where's your, and, and will you, will you please remember that and try to go to that place really regularly? Um, you know, to get out into creation. Um, but I think the most important thing of all is you've got to have a spiritual friend and it cannot be your spouse. It cannot be your partner. It cannot be, it cannot be your senior pastor. If you're on staff, you need to really cultivate um, a friend who is as curious about God and as desiring to be faithful to God as you are. And you've got to always have a spiritual friend on the journey. I mean, Jesus sent them out two by two for a reason. Um, And I have found that it's my spiritual friends in the middle of the night (laughs) who have um, buoyed me in, in, you know, really in the headwinds. And it's that that longing for community that people are looking for everywhere. I mean, we have more ways to communicate, but there's less true communication. Uh, and I kind of are you are you involved in a local church now? I mean, I wouldn't. I am. Okay. I, yeah, I am. I, Why do you think that's important? Because a lot of people are sort of jettisoning that whole notion because sure. of it. Well, I, it's been important for me, and I think uh, I think it always will be. Um, because that is where I see the face of God. I literally. When I'm sitting in the sanctuary, and of course I'm I'm not on staff now because I retired, but I'm still active in the church as a retired person. Um, I I can look around and see the face of God in the people who have who have come together for so many reasons. So to be in that, even though no, it's not perfect. I mean, I know part of the criticism is just full of hypocrites, and I say exactly. Let's go back and read scripture. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. But they're hypocrites and sinners and lovers and saints who are committed for various reasons to come together and turn their faces towards God and um, and I, I just hope. So I think without that, without taking that time with other people in community, um, we will lose our way for what our calling with God is. I mean, again, I can say that because that's been my experience. Um, And I also think God didn't, I mean, God, there's nothing in scripture that tells me that God really um, wants us to not take time to come together in community. And although that's hard for us sometimes, or we're just not interested Something happens. Something happens when the people of God, for whatever reasons they do, come together and um, experience the power of the Holy Spirit as a community. I mean, that's where that's where um, 
gosh, as our protests began, that's where um, we grieve together. That's where we lament together. I mean, it's like there's this power that happens in my experience that I just hate for people to miss. Um, it's also where we baptize people. It's where we bury people. It's where we marry people. It's where in our tradition we have services for uh, miscarriages. We have services for divorce. We have. It's where the community loves each other in the most delicate, holy times of life. And, oh, I just, I think that's just, that's been so important for me. And um, so that's really why I think being in a community of faith, and it doesn't have to be big, but I think we miss part of what God can do for us as loving our neighbors. Do I think that if churches just didn't exist, God would find another way? Well, I think God is already finding other ways. I I think God is bigger than our tumult about what it means to be church. Um, I know God is bigger than that because people find people and love people well. But I there's something about Pentecost, you know, and I don't, I don't know it. Maybe the rest of my life I'll be trying to figure that out and, and see. So what is the Spirit doing now? Where is the Spirit stirring up people to form communities of faith that can together lift the unliftable, you know, or um, move the immovable um, on behalf of God. I, I don't think it's got, it, there's no way it could be relegated to the church. I mean, there are mosques doing that. There are certainly temples doing that and synagogues doing that and groups of friends doing that. So I don't think God's limiting anything, but I think it's a really good place for many people to be stirred up um, in faith and to find the contagion of hope, um, which we need. And in light of that, what do you, what do you see as the good news, the message of the gospel? I I think the good news, um, is that every single element of creation, every single person is so beloved of God (laughs) that God is steadfastly, Um, with us and that in particular Jesus and I I love what Hebrews says that Jesus is this gift to us this incarnational gift to us um, that is is that imprint of God's being so the good news is that God loves us that much that God loves us so much that we've got this imprint to follow and learn about and see and try to take on that will change our lives in the ways of God. And how is that not good? I mean, I love that. I love that. I love that. What is a truth for me? Um, And that's the good news that, that God is forever loving us that way and will not ever not love us in that way towards Um, towards becoming fully what God's creation can and will become. And that we have a part in that. I mean, just that's the mystery. I, I, Pam Hawkins, have a part in that story of 
life and world-changing love. I mean, <laughs> where did that come from? <laughs> this year, you're, we're talking. We've been talking about Advent, you know, and the the one of the oh, Holy Night talks about the thrill of hope and a weary world rejoices. Boy, we have a weary world now. And you just we mentioned do. who is Jesus, Pam? Uh, well, Jesus for me, and again, I think we all have um, have an answer. I hope. Um, I mean, Jesus really is. Um, Love, love infused um, in the human spirit and body for a time, but certainly in our spirits. And I, I mean, it, it is my Sunday school. It's probably my first or second grade Sunday school lesson. But Jesus is love. And Jesus is this incarnational love, which means for me that God is not about to let a person like me have any excuse to not get it, <laughs> to not get what love looks like. Um, there, there's no excuse for me as a person who loves God and who a person who's been shown and over and over again this exact imprint of love. Um, I have no excuse not to want to be changed by that. And that's who Jesus is. It is it is this incarnational love that is um, relentlessly, really relentlessly um, giving me this example. Pam, what else are you working on now? What's your next project? I am currently working on a really short piece um, for, I think, um, a, a, a short um, set of writings for Christmas week. I think for 2019. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so that's how far in advance we do these. Um, so I'm working in the scriptures of 2019 for Christmas week. Um, I, um, I am um, thinking about, <laughs> I'm thinking about, or in, I guess the development process of really writing um, some letters to my denomination to my church about um, what it means to love um, the LGBTQ community. I mean, how to really go back and look at scripture. And at least for my denomination where we are struggling and, I, and where I believe we're so missing God's intent. So that's been deeply on my mind what I, my passion for writing and what I, I'm always writing are prayers. I write prayers all the time. Um, get encouragement to, you know, try to put those in, into a, a book. And I, I've done that as I did for, for Lent. I do that now and then. But that's, I mean, when all is said and done, I'm working on prayers for all kinds of, all kinds of reasons that bubble up in my own life. Um, that's my, that's what I love to do. Would you recommend, is there a prayer book? If somebody's looking for a place to start, let's say they're, they're, they might not even be of our tradition. Uh, where, where would you suggest? Um, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Let me pull a few so I can give you the real title. Right. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard when I have so many and I have to, but I'll just start with this. I mean, I would, I, I always try to give one of um, Reuben Job's and Norman Sawchuk's books, A Guide to Prayer. So there, there's, there's a book called A Guide to Prayer 
for all who seek God. And it's, um, it's an upper room book, but these have been out for so many years. And I think there are about five of them now, but any one of them, I would I always, I give those as gifts, just saying, here's a place to start. Um, I have a favorite little book, a really little book. I, don't, I think it's still in print called Prayers for My Village by um, Michelle Boutier, B-O-U-T-T-I-E-R. And it's, again, it's very small. It's very old, translated from French. And I love it. <laughs> I just love it. Well, Pam, I hope you have the best Advent season ever. You are part of my tribe, and I've enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I'll remind everybody, Pam's new book, Prepare the Way, Cultivating a Heart for God in Advent, is available at, at Amazon just about everywhere else. And this will run in time for people to have a chance to buy it and start working on it. Uh, Pam, I enjoy talking to you. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Greg. I've enjoyed it. And I hope after listening to Pam, you'll be thinking about the Advent season, which is about to begin uh, next week and speaking next week hope you'll join us here next week on the thinking god podcast where we look for people who have faith and hope in the world we live in Over